Well, good morning. As Pastor Craig said earlier, we're going to begin a study in the book of Ruth over the next several weeks. And as we begin that study, Pastor Brian wanted me to to introduce it with a few words. 2020 has has probably been a, a year unlike any other for you, or at least in recent memory. We've been affected by a virus that's disrupted our daily lives. Just look around. We're wearing masks. Right? Who would have thought that this time last year? Perhaps there were fewer people at your Thanksgiving dinner than you would have liked or would have preferred. But there might be more, more costly things than a mask or a few less people at your house. You might have experienced the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job, the loss of finances. And this virus has affected our lives in, in ways other than this. You've probably, all of us, have been impacted by a loss of fellowship of some sort. We haven't been able to be joyful and rejoice with those who are rejoiced or joyful, and we haven't been able to grieve with those who grieve in the way that we would want to. And as we reach the end of this difficult year, this tough year, you might be asking, how can we trust in this God who has allowed and brought these things to happen? Well, the book of Ruth is going to address that issue head on, even in our text today in Ruth chapter 1. The story of Ruth helps us see what God's solution is to times of trouble and difficulty. Ruth provides a beautiful picture of God's covenantal love, as Pastor Rick just talked about. It's a story that portrays the worthiness of, of men and women, Ruth and Boaz in particular, in the most difficult of times. It exposes our our prejudices as we see Ruth, a Moabite, somebody who would have been of very little account in their day, as she's going to be wed to Boaz. It shows us all of the struggles and sorrows of life are under God's providential hand, and he's working them out for his good purpose in us. And ultimately, Ruth shows us this history that even in the darkest days, God is pursuing a covenant relationship with his people that he's going to bring to fruition in his son, the great king. So as we begin the book of Ruth, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher, so I have kind of these, these things that I often do at the beginning of sermons or talks that I do, where I give a few hints on how to read or how to understand biblical texts. And so I, I just want to talk about Ruth with three minor points. Ruth is a, is a narrative book. And so I just want to give you three kind of beginner tips on how to read narrative, or maybe even how not to read narrative with one of these. So as we look at these narrative texts, we probably feel a pull to go straight to application. Narrative texts are not primarily trying to exhort or command you to specifically do something right now. So I'll give you the example. In in the first five verses of the text that we have this morning, there's going to be a famine in the land, and so Elimelech and his family are going to go to Moab, right? There's a famine in the land. I don't want you to run home today, and because your local Costco is out of toilet paper, think that you are supposed to move to another city, state, or country, right? And we laugh, right? That's funny. We wouldn't apply it that way, would we? That seems silly. It seems seems awkward for us. But, But we actually do often apply the text that way when we read narrative. And we do so, I think, mistakenly. So I've heard a number of people say, well, God called Abraham to go, and so therefore I think he's calling me to go. And what we've done is we've just inserted ourselves in the place of Abraham. That's that's not how narrative is functioning. There's something much bigger at play there. 
With the call of Abraham out of Ur and out of Haran, what God is doing is he's working out a covenantal reconciliation with his people where he's going to send a son in the line of Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. It's much bigger than just you and me. Now, does God call his people to do things? Absolutely. But we can't just so easily read a text where a narrative character does something and then think that we're supposed to do that thing. Again, just because your local Costco is out of toilet paper doesn't mean you need to relocate, right? Narrative books also often don't make evaluations. What I mean by this is they, they just present the story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and they expect you, the authors of the biblical text, expect you to know the Bible, and they expect you to know what God wants and what God desires and what he's revealed in his word. Kind of like when you're watching a movie or a television show, the, the producer, right, the director of, of the show or the movie, as you're watching people interact with one another, the director doesn't come on the screen and say, by the way, this, what this character is doing is considered you know, taboo socially. You know, we're not recommending that you do this. You don't see that with a television show or a movie because we know our culture. We know what's taboo and what's not taboo. Right? And it's the same thing with the biblical books. It's not going to often evaluate. Sometimes it does. The book of Judges does, the book of Kings does, but not always. And lastly, as we're reading narrative books, one of the things that narrative does so beautifully is it shows us God's working with his people in his world. And so you've got texts like epistles. We just got through 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter. It's an epistle. Those are pretty straightforward. They're pretty easy. You will see statements like, God is faithful in an epistle. We might not see a direct statement that says God is faithful in the book of Ruth, but the book of Ruth displays God's faithfulness on every verse. It gives that God is faithful statement in the epistle or in the psalm. It gives it legs, doesn't it? It shows us the faithfulness of God in a way that just a mere statement doesn't show us. And so as we dive into the book of Ruth over the next several weeks, and don't worry, I'll only be preaching this week. Pastor Brian, Pastor Cody, Pastor David are going to be preaching the next one, so you can, you can rest easy. But as, as, we, as we continue on in the book of Ruth, we're going to see that goodness and that faithfulness of God in his plan. And we're going to see people's responses to it. And I pray that as we see those responses, we would desire to, well, to respond in the way that we should. The book of Ruth, it can be broken into four major units that follow the chapters. Today we're gonna to be looking at Ruth chapter one. We're gonna be introduced to the book, the characters, and the difficult times that they find themselves in. And so the big idea of this chapter, of this text, is that in the most difficult times imaginable, an unlikely person, Ruth, chooses to show loyalty to God and his people. And the main point of our text is we try to apply that idea is that we are faced with difficulties, sometimes the unimaginable, and we're called to live like God's covenant people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, that you've reconciled us to yourself through his blood, and Father, we pray that as we read this text and we see an example of amazing love and faithfulness to you, Father, we pray that we would, we would do likewise as we face difficult times and difficult decisions. It's for your glory and in your son's name that we pray. Amen. 
So the book of Ruth is going to start off, and this, the section that we're going to be looking at can basically be breaking down into three scenes, right? So when we read narrative, we, we kind of think in scenes. And, and the first scene is going to be Ruth 1, 1 through 5, and we're going to see that this is going to present a very dark and difficult time. So it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means my God is king, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem was known as Bethlehem Ephrathah. You're probably familiar with that from, from Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are by no means least, right? It's just they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Moab is just across the Dead Sea to, to I guess, the southeast of where they would have been. So they went to Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died. So the woman, that is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. These verses were, were given the setting of the book. We're, we're, we're introduced to kind of some of the main characters. We'll be introduced to another one in chapter two. And the beginnings of the plot and the setting of this book, right, is it says, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges were judging. So this is a time that, if you know your Bible, it's right after the time of Joshua, right after they've entered into the land, right, they've been taken out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. They've gone into uh, the, the, the land under the conquest in the book of Joshua. Joshua has died. So we're around the year 1375 BC, and it's right before the time of the kings of Israel, which is going to start at about 1050 BC. So about a 300 or so year window. But there's a lot that happens in that 300 year window. So when we hear this phrase, the time when the judges ruled, certain things are supposed to pop up in our mind from the book of Judges. Does anybody, are you familiar with the term dystopian literature? So dystopian literature is a very, very popular form of literature in books and in TV shows and in movies. You see it with like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, if you've ever read that book or watched the movie uh, of that. Maybe, maybe a zombie apocalypse type of film, right? Often this, this genre of literature is, is re referred to as post-apocalyptic, where basically people are put in the most dire of circumstances and we see how they respond. That's what dystopian literature is. And when we hear in the days when the judges ruled, that's what we're supposed to think of. The time of the judges was the worst time in Israel's history. And on top of that, this text tells us that there was also a famine in the land. So the book of Judges gives us a history that's filled with idolatry. There's a statement that occurs four times at the end of bo the book of Judges, in 17.6, 18.1, 19.1, and 21.25. This is the, like the interpretive key to the book of Judges. And it says on those 17.6 and 21.25, the two bracketing ones, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And every narrative in between that shows us what it means that every person did what was right in their own eyes or whatever they wanted. And it is a story of idolatry and decay 
and, and really awfulness. And there are seven times throughout the book of Judges where it says that the people did not do what is right in the sight of the Lord, which is the exact same thing. To not do what is right in the sight of the Lord is the exact same thing as to do what is right in your own eyes. And that is ultimately a statement of idolatry. And in Judges 19, we hit kind of a crescendo of what the time of the judges was like. And it is Sodom and Gomorrah lived out in Israel. If you've never read Judges 19, it is one of the most terrifying, scary texts ever. And it is showing that Israel has descended into chaos so much so that they look exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. So when we see that in the days when the judges ruled, we're like, oh no, right? This is going to be a dystopian book, post-apocalyptic literature. And we're introduced to the people in these first five verses. There's a family from Bethlehem that's moved to Moab because of this famine in the land, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Mahlon and Chilion. These marry Moabite women, which wasn't expressly forbidden in the law, but would have been, again, taboo. And Moab, well, the reason why that is, is Moab does not have the greatest how shall I say, connotation or reputation. If you read Genesis 19, we see the, the origins of the people of Moab with Lot and his, his incestuous relationship with his daughter. And in, even in Judges, the time when this book takes place, Eglon was ruling over Israel from Moab. And he was, he was coercing them and he was forcing them to labor. So not a great reputation, not a great relationship between the people of Judah, the people of Israel, and then the people of Moab. But maybe the main event that we think of when we think of Moab and its relationship to the people of Israel is when the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, just, you know, the previous generations, as they were coming out of Egypt and as they were going into the land. In Numbers 22 through 25, there's, there's a prophet who comes on the scene by the name of Balaam, and the king of Moab, Balak, tries to hire Balaam to curse Israel. Well, it doesn't work, kind of. It's going to work in the end because Balak is going to give Balaam some advice to tell them, have them follow another God and then God will curse them. But what happens at the end of this incident in Numbers 25 is that the people of Israel, they go after the, the, the women of Moab and they follow their gods as well. And there's this incident that lives with Israel known as Baal of Peor. They, they, they worship the Baal of Peor, the, the, the Baal, the, the, the Lord of Peor, and God ends up judging them for this. And the book of Joshua talks about this, and this lives on in their history. We don't want this to repeat. We don't want another Baal Peor incident. But all of this is with Moab, right? That when you hear that they went to Moab, that they married Moabites, these things are going to come into the mind of any reader of the Bible. So this dystopian literature where these people who are trying to lure us into idolatry, right? It doesn't look good, right? It doesn't look good. And then we see right, in the latter verses of this section, how not only does Elimelech pass away, not only do the sons marry Moabite wives, but the two sons pass away as well, Mahlon and Chilion. Things seem bad. The stage is set. How are these people going to respond? It's the book of Judges part two. Be prepared to have your Kleenex ready, is what we're expecting. The book opens with a pretty grim picture of difficulty and loss. There's questionable decision-making. And we are just starting to get the picture of what's about to unfold. What we're expecting is this dark, dystopian picture of every person for herself, 
where Ruth and Naomi are doing what is right in their own eyes, right? They've armed themselves with everything that they can to, to wreak havoc. Maybe that's what we're expecting by what, what has set, set place in these first five verses. But what we're going to get is a picture that's dramatically different than that. And because this, this time period is so dark and because everything that's happening is so difficult, it's going to shine a light that's so much greater we're going to see people who, even in the darkest and most desperate circumstances, choose to follow God. The people who are the most unlikely to endanger their own little kingdoms are going to care more about the kingdom of God than they are their own. And as I said at the beginning, this has been a trying and difficult year. It's not just the people in this book that are going to be presented with those kinds of decisions. Every day we are presented with, with these kinds of decisions. And in the book of Ruth, we're presented with a real history of how God's people who believe in the same God as we do choose him every time. How they respond in faith and how the, all of the biblical storyline is calling us to respond in faith as well. So there's that dark kind of grim setting that we see in the first few verses, but we're gonna see an immediate response by Ruth, which is just going to be like, all right, maybe this book isn't going to be so bad after all. So in scene two, in verses six through 18, Ruth is going to make this covenantal confession. And this is what it says. Verse six. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So a little bit of hope here. The Lord has visited his people. He's given them food. The famine is over, verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for, my, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth cleaved, Ruth clung to her. And she, that is Naomi, said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, I will be and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, Naomi said, no more. So Naomi's husbands and sons have passed. And here we see an interaction with Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Right, she, she urges them to return back to their mother's house, right, to, to go back to, to their family and to, to find solace and comfort in 
their, their new homes and their new husbands. The family unit in the ancient world was their 401k, it was their health insurance, it was everything that they had all wrapped up and bundled into one. So when you lose your family, you lose, it's like the stock market completely crashing and your 401k being completely gone. It's, it's like your insurance being canceled. It's like all of those things happening all at one time. And then the grief on top of it all. And so she, she urges them to do that. And, and her request might seem odd to you. You might be like, well, what in the world is it talking about when it says, like, go back to, 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 your, to your husbands and even if I should have, you know, children this very night? What's, what's going on with Naomi's statement there? Well, in the Bible, we see this, this notion of, of, of leveret marriage. And, and what happens is if an, the oldest brother dies, other people who live in the same household are supposed to perpetuate the name of the brother so that his name does not die out in Israel, so that land continues to belong in the family. And we see the, a picture of this in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It says this, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll skip around and I'll read pieces of it. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall be married outside, shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother. So that, that son won't, won't bear the name of the actual biological father, but of the brother, Right. And his name, that his main name may not be blotted out of Israel. And it says that it gives these stipulations where it says, and if, if a brother refuses to do this, the widow goes to the elders at the gate of the city and he takes the sandal off of the, the brother who refuses to do this and she spits in his face. And in verse 10 it says, uh, uh, it says, in the name of the household of that brother who refuses to do this shall be the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. That's trash talk right there, Right? <laughs> Well, we're going to see how big of a thing this is when we get to chapter four, right? And how this would in, endanger somebody's own inheritance. And I'm sure Naomi is thinking something along the lines of, I'm about to bring a Moabite wife back with me. Who is going to marry her? Right? Go back to your gods. Go back to your people. Go back to your father's house. Right? And at first, with this urging that Naomi gives, this pleading, they both refuse. But after the initial refusal, Orpah goes back to her family, but Ruth clings to Naomi. And in her clinging, what does that mean? Well, she makes this confession. She says, don't urge me to leave. Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me if anything but death parts us. This is a covenant statement. In fact, in the Bible, where you see that your God will be my God or your people will be my people statement. This is known as the covenant formula. And a covenant is a relationship that is binding, that is built on loyalty and love. Ruth is attaching herself. She's cleaving herself to Naomi. And she was, she was cleaved to her by marriage to some degree. But how many of you feel that close to your mothers-in-law, Right? So Ruth's confession is powerful. She seemingly had no worldly reason to stay with Naomi other than this commitment that she made through marriage. Naomi gave her her blessing and every reason to depart, didn't she? Every reason to leave. But in that reason that Naomi gave, she also gave the only reason to stay. I don't know if you caught it, but Naomi, notice what she says to Ruth and Orpah. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you 
as you have dealt with the dead and with me, with, with my sons and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest. That could not happen if Ruth went back to her family and to her gods. The blessing that Naomi mentions is only found in the Lord. It is not found in the homes of Moab. And instead of choosing what would have seemed the convenient and the easy way, the way that I'm sure all of the Moabites around her would have said, yeah, come back to your mother's house. Come back to our gods. Look what, look what the Lord has done to you. Instead, Ruth chooses the Lord because she knows that the Lord is the one who has the answers to her problems. Ruth's decision seems foolish to a world that does not know God. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But Ruth knew the Lord. Things might seem rough right now. Mom, you might be stuck at home with the kids. School is not going the way that you wanted it to go. Dad, you might be working from home if you're fortunate enough to be able to do that. And things might be a little bit too loud. There might be a little bit more chaos there. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I wish that I just got to work from home or that things were a little too loud. Maybe you've lost a, a job. Maybe you've lost a loved one like Naomi, like Ruth. What you are going through, others have been through. Seek God. Brian preached last week on the, on the end of 1 Thessalonians. Seek God. Entrust yourself to him like Ruth does. Rely on his word and find comfort in his people. Respond like Ruth. Respond like Ruth. She's going through a pretty difficult time. And maybe you find yourself here and, and Ruth's confession is intriguing to you, right? Maybe you're listening at home and you, you don't know the Lord. It may seem that there is no hope in this world. The biggest problem that we have isn't going to be, you know, uh, seen in, in Ruth chapter one. It's probably not even uh, what you're thinking it is. The biggest problem that we have is that we need to be reconciled to God. We have broken relationship with God because God created the world to be good and to have right relationship with him, but humanity rebelled against him, wanting more than that. And what they ended up doing is they sinned, they broke that relationship with God, but God pursued his people through covenantal faithfulness. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to reconcile us to himself through his perfect life, through his death on the cross, his sacrificial atoning death, and through his resurrection from the dead, he defeated sin and death and the devil. The Christian has the compelling story, and it is better than the story of this world. And what God calls us to do is repent and believe in his son and trust in his son for that reconciliation that we need. I would encourage you to, to talk to, to either me or, or, or one of the elders. There are several elders here after the service if you have questions about that. So Ruth's response was amazing, but we're going to see kind of a contrasting response in some respects to that with Naomi's response in this third scene in Ruth 19 through 22, 1, 19 through 22. And here we're going to see Naomi's bitter return and response. And the text says this, so the two of them, Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. You can imagine, right? And the woman said, is this Naomi? 
And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the time or the beginning of the barley harvest. So when Naomi returns, the, the, the city is stirred. You have this picture of kind of like a small town. Think of like a movie where somebody returns to like a small southern town. Everybody's talking, right? Is this Naomi? And the women seem to understand and know that it's Naomi, right? They're, they're like, what has happened to Naomi, right? And the women, just, just, this is just something they wanted to keep in mind. The, the women here, they're going to say, is this Naomi? And Naomi's going to respond to them. These women are going to come back again at the end of the book. And so there are a couple of things that, that give us, the, the, as we read these passages, God is going to reverse what happens in chapter 1 and chapter 4. So we've got this genealogical problem where there's, there's death in Elimelech's family at the, end, at the beginning, but then at the end we're going to see the, the line being preserved, and it's the line of David, and it's the line of Jesus ultimately. And then we're going to see bookends to the storyline. Also, these, these women are going to say, is this Naomi? And at the end they're going to praise and they're going to bless Naomi for this new child that she has through the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. So, there's, so keep this in mind, this statement of the women, because it's going to come back again. And Naomi responds to them with this bitter response. In verse 13, the section above, we kind of saw a glimpse or a foretaste of this, where she said to, to, to Ruth and Orpah, she said, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Right? So it's bitter for me. And here, when the women say, is this Naomi, she responds and says, no longer call me Naomi. And that name means something like lovely or pleasant. No longer call me pleasant, but call me bitter, Mara. That's the, the word for bitter. And we've, we've got really an interpretive decision here. This is the only interpretive difficulty really in this text so far. Naomi says what is theologically true. God is in control. She understands that everything comes from the hand of God. The Bible testifies to this. Pastor Cody's going to read a text out of Psalm 115 and the benediction that's going to talk about how the Lord does all that he pleases. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin that. But everything that happens comes from God's hands. There's no chance. There's no coincidence. He is in control. So she says what is theologically right. But while Naomi's theology of providence is correct, her application of it to herself leaves something to be desired. I don't want to read Naomi's words too harshly here. She does bless them positively in the name of the Lord, knowing that blessing comes from the hand of the Lord as well. And that's going to be found on the lips of Boaz in the next chapter. But she does seem to think that, that God is out to get her, which is certainly not the case. And she says that she went away, she went away full, but she's come back empty. There's an old expression, right, that I'm sure that has come into to Ruth's mind. Not really, because it's our expression, right? But Ruth's probably like, what am I, chopped liver? Right? You've come, you've come back empty? Naomi, in her, in her sorrow, understanding God's providence, seems to misinterpret her circumstances to some degree. She didn't come back empty. And the book is actually going to end with the women of the city, the people of the city saying, that Ruth is more to her than seven sons could be. She failed to see, she understood God's providence, but she failed to see God's providential care for her 
in that circumstance. She failed to understand, in a sense, the gravity of Ruth's proclamation and covenantal confession. And of course, this text ends on a little bit of a high note. It says, earlier it said, the Lord had visited his people and brought them food. And here it says it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Things are starting to turn around. It's not dystopian literature. And as we consider Naomi's response, we are going to go through suffering. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Pastor Brian talked about this at several points in 1 Thessalonians. Pastor Cody just got done teaching a course on it with Pastor Mario, right? When we go through suffering, it's important to understand that God is sovereign. Nothing has ever taken God by surprise. This should comfort us. Naomi, in her stress, knew God's sovereignty. She didn't question it even for a second. But that's not really enough, is it? In the midst of her suffering, she failed to see God's provision. She thought that she had come home empty, but she had a daughter who trusted in God more than anyone around her, more than her, it would seem. God is working things out even when we don't see the whole picture, and we never see the whole picture. We have one puzzle piece on a million-piece puzzle. God is working things out. Habakkuk 2, which Paul quotes in Romans and Galatians, says that the arrogant are puffed up, but that the righteous live by faith. God has shown himself faithful. God has shown himself trustworthy. Trust in him. He knows the whole picture. Trust in him by embracing trials and suffering. I'm struck by the way that God's people respond to these throughout Scripture. Right? If you remember when we were in the sermon series in the book of Acts, Pastor Brian preached through, through Acts 3 through 5, and you've got John and Peter going to, the, going to the temple to pray, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're threatened, right? and they're warned, and they're beaten, and they go away from being beaten. And do you remember what the, what the text says? It said they went away rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. That's how God's people respond to suffering. It's not easy. It's easy when we read it on a page to think that we're going to do that in the, in, in the circumstances. But it is harder when the, when the rubber hits the road. James 1 says, consider it, consider it pure or all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because God is working something out in you. He's working out a maturity to bring you to this, to this maturity in Christ that he wants you to be in. So instead of disdaining or being bitter over God's providential hand, ask for wisdom is what James says. But when any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And when we find ourselves in that difficult circumstance, don't we lack wisdom? We don't know why this is happening. Ask God. Seek God. 1 Peter 1 talks about how our suffering is, is used to refine us. God is removing the dross. So I pray that as we look at what's going on, and as I mentioned earlier, we're not, we're not trying to insert ourselves in the narrative here. Right? But we do see these great theological truths about God worked out in the real world in this narrative. In this text, we see God's sovereignty understood at a deep level and we see this good confession by Ruth when she entrusts herself to God. And we see Ruth, how she responds to that, what she does, right? And as we look at that, we have even more reason to respond. 
Ruth is tying herself to Naomi and the good law that God gave them through Moses and going to rely on that. They're going to rely on the law that that cares for sojourners and and, and the poor in chapter 2. They're going to rely on God's good law for for redemption in chapter 3 and 4, right? That was a good word. We have even more reason to hope to use the language of Hebrews 7 and 8 because we have a better covenant. We know that God has not just given us his law, he's given us his son. And he's placed his spirit within us. As you're going through difficult times, Romans 8 talks about how a Christian goes through suffering and difficulty, but that God is in control, working all things out for our good. We may not think it is for our good. We may not realize or feel that it is for our good, but it is for our good. And that's not just some, some, some blank expression. God does this, and it's grounded in Romans 8 through what God is doing in his spirit who dwells inside of us and in what Christ has already done on the cross. So I want to read a few verses out of Romans 8. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the children of God, us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself might be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then in verse 26, he says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then at the end, he's gonna have this statement where he's gonna say, if God didn't spare his only son, if God gave us his his own son, what won't he give us? What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So as we think of the difficult circumstances that Ruth was in, and the good covenantal promises that she had to lean on through God's law in the Old Testament. We have so much more in the new covenant that he has given us by sending his spirit to dwell inside of us and his son to die on a cross in our place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that while we were sinners, while we were without hope and without God in this world, You sent your son into this world to die in our place for our sins. And Father, we pray that as the life gives us difficulties that that we cannot handle on our own, Father, we pray that we would understand that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in our weakness. And Father, we confess we have not trusted in you as we ought. We have leaned on our own understanding We have sought our own kingdom in our own way. But Father, we pray that you would help us to have that good confession that Ruth has and that we would seek you and your kingdom first. 
We love you. We thank you for your love for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.